As we face the new year, we need to pray that jobs will be created so that food can be put on the table and mortgages can be paid. But as we struggle to get going economically, maybe we are in a better position to understand what Moses meant when he said, Man shall not live by bread alone. Maybe we can open our eyes to see the true bread that gives life to the world. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, for Bread and Wine. Hey man, give me some bread. I need some bread. Somebody give me some bread this morning. Come on, give me some bread. Give me some bread. What kind of bread you got in there? Let's see. Man, you're doing good. A 20. Good. All right. Good. Thanks. That's good. You automatically knew right away in our culture. No, I won't steal to begin the New Year's. Where I was raised in New York City, everybody knows. Somebody comes up in the street, hey man, I need some bread. Just like you. It shows you how universal it is. Because bread is one of the things, one of the slang words that we use for money. In the ancient world, bread was not just money. Bread was what sustained us. And so what we want to do as we begin this new year is I want you to think, what's going to sustain you in the coming year? And our culture right now really believes bread is what sustains us, the $20 bill. Why do we need jobs? Because money is what's going to sustain us. In the ancient world in the first century, it was much more basic. It was much more fundamental. If you cut your finger, you couldn't just run to an emergency room. It's possible that you would get tetanus and you would be dead. The average person only lived to be a little bit over 30. So death was all around them, just a totally different day. And so when you mention the word bread in the first century, they thought of literal bread. And this bread is what held their lives together physically. You didn't go on no-carb diets. You can only go on no-carb diets in a culture that's really productive, that has enough money to grow grain and can produce beef and everything. In the first century, you only had lamb, not beef, but you had lamb or goat when it was a big celebration. Having meat was a really special thing. When you got up in the morning, some of you haven't had your carbs yet. I haven't had my carbs yet. But in the first century world, every Jewish kid, from the time of the little baby, they got up and they had some of this. The other thing that they took was they drank some wine. Those were the two sustaining things because they didn't just turn on their tap and have water come. Remember the well of the woman of Samaria when Jesus met her in John chapter 4? And that was a deep well. Mary and I have had the privilege of being there and drank some water from that well That well is very deep. It has very pure water. But most of the places that you go, even in Israel today, they tell you, be careful. Like when you shave in the morning, you'll see a big sign, use the water sparingly. If you take a shower, there's a big sign that says, turn the water off. After you get wet, then you soap down, turn the water off while you're soaping down, then you turn it on because water is really precious. So the sustaining first century food and drink was wine because with the alcohol in it, it would keep the germs away from impurified water and you would have bread. So bread and wine was something that was on every table, every meal, and it sustained life. What's the first thing you thought of when you see the bread and the wine? The Last Supper. I want you to think that in the first century, 
bread and wine, they would automatically think of, these are my basic life support realities, physically. In our culture, we automatically jump to the Lord's Supper and having communion together. In the first century, they didn't just have the Lord's Supper as they began a year. They didn't just have it in a large church like this. They would do it in house to house. In the book of Acts, it tells us that as the early church got started, that they would break bread daily from house to house. Believers would gather together. And they had these elements. They had bread and they had wine. And they would partake in their meal. They would remember the Lord. And what I want to do is I begin this year as we think of the most fundamental thing, which is the breaking of the bread. It's one of the most fundamental holy things that we do as a body of Christ. I want you to turn to John chapter 6. Because it's possible some of you that were like my friends back in New Jersey that were Roman Catholics, they broke bread. It was a very, almost a magical time. They would go into big cathedrals and they would come forward in a procession and a priest would give them the bread and the priest would give them the wine. A lot of you are from that background. In the Greek Orthodox tradition, they even do it behind the curtain. Because that's where the great miracle takes place, where this actually becomes the body of Jesus. This actually becomes his blood. Some of you are from that tradition. In fact, Christians have killed each other over that, over whether or not this is the real presence of Jesus or whether it represents a figure of something much deeper. Whatever background you're from, John chapter 6 is the portion of the Gospel of John, which is the latest gospel. It's the gospel that's written the latest in the first century, it's written by the beloved disciple. And unlike Matthew, Mark, Luke, if you want to know like what happened at the Last Supper, which is when this communion meal was instituted, if you want to read about the words that Jesus gave, you have to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Interesting enough, the fourth gospel has the longest discussion of what Jesus taught his disciples at the Last Supper, in the journey to Gethsemane, what happened in Gethsemane, but he never mentions the beloved disciple, never tells us about the communion meal that the disciples had in the Gospel of John. That's an interesting thing that you might not have realized. That's because John wants us to understand what was really behind the communion meal. So you need to turn to John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we have the Apostle John's explanation, not just John's explanation, but he actually lets Jesus explain what the bread represents and what the cup represents. So we turn to John chapter 6. Jesus has just multiplied the loaves. He has just multiplied the fishes. He did that on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is it was like a big lake, kind of like I was raised on in the Adirondacks. It's a literal lake. Tiberius is across the lake. After Jesus fed the 5,000, the disciples got in a boat and they went to Capernaum, which is on the northern side of the lake, right on the shore, a little bit towards the western shore. So the disciples, after they distributed the bread and the fishes, they got in boats and they went to Capernaum, which is Jesus' hometown, which is where he settled in his adult ministry in northern Galilee. You following me? Jesus, during the night, I'm just catching you up so you know where we are in this story. Jesus walks on the water. 
And he didn't have to go 40 miles an hour like I do when I walk on water. In other words, I want you to know, really, if you go 38, 40, the water becomes like a table. You can actually stand on it. Jesus, as the creator of the water, is able to overcome the chaos. Remember I taught you last time we were together that the water represents the place of death, the place that has storms, the place where you can't live. Our creator can just walk on it. And Peter, have the incredible story of Peter coming to Jesus, walking on the water. And the Bible's telling us you need to decide whether you believe that your Savior can actually do that. In the Gospel of John, he's challenging you. Are you a person that believes that there could be a Son of God who could literally walk on the water? That's the important thing. And could multiply fish. The crowd realizes in the morning that the disciples and Jesus are gone. Some boats come across from Tiberias, from the western to the eastern shore. They all jump in the boat. Some of them probably came by foot. And they find Jesus in Capernaum. And in the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue, Jesus explains what the meaning of this bread, the meaning of this cup is all about. I want you to turn there to John chapter 6. This is an incredible passage that I want to begin the new year in my own life about. And I want to invite you to begin 2011 asking yourself, what's bread? What is bread in my own life? What am I going to live for in 2011? Look what it says in verse 25. When they found him, that's the crowd that had witnessed Jesus multiplying the loaves. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And they're also asking, how did you get here? This Jewish crowd begins, we recognize you that you're a great teacher, so you can all begin with me. Jesus is being recognized in the first century as a great teacher. That's where all of you can begin. You don't have to think anything else. But I want you to start to ask yourself, who is this rabbi going to claim to be in the coming verses? And I want you to think, I want you to try to go back 2,000 years. I want you to think of being in that synagogue and actually hearing a Jewish rav, a Jewish master, a Jewish teacher begin to talk like this. Look what he says. Like he often does, Jesus doesn't answer the question. He says, well, I walked on the water over here. Jesus doesn't answer questions like that. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, which is the multiplying of the fish and the loaves, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus, this morning as he meets with you, just cuts right to the chase. He says, what are you going to live for? The crowd comes and they says, hey, how did you get here? What's going on here? Jesus sees right into their heart and says, you're just living for bread. And the only reason you came seeking me so strongly is you just want someone in the first century world that can be a, a constant Tom Thumb. I ask myself today, is that why I come to Jesus? A lot of people are coming to Jesus because they want him to give them health. They want him to give them money. Your Savior has that kind of power. But I want you to know that in the first century that Jesus actually did multiply food in a time when food was scarce. And so part of the challenge is, will I only come to Jesus because he can meet my physical needs? As American believers, we are living in a culture that lives just for material needs. Remember, stupid, it's about the economy. If you think of the hours you have spent analyzing, I wonder if the economy is up, I wonder if it's down. 
Have jobs begun to increase? Have they gone down? If you'll think about all those conversations, and I'm included in that, I ask myself, what do I live for? And what I'm thinking about is what sustains me? This is an incredible beginning of the year. Let's ask ourselves, what am I living for? And our Savior says to a crowd, the only reason you're seeking me is you want me to fill your stomach. So one of the questions I ask myself today is, as I come to Jesus, is all that I want him to do, do I want him to fill my stomach? And you need to ask yourself that. What are you living for? Are you living just to fill your stomach? Jesus is really going to tell you the truth. Your stomach really isn't that important in the long run. Like I saw a lady in intensive care at Baylor. She's all swollen. She's all filled with intravenous tubes. She has a tube down. And I had prime rib, which was marvelous. God's blessing on Christmas. It was awesome. We'd never done that before. It had precious family. It was awesome. But I couldn't interest my person in intensive care in a beautiful piece of prime rib. Because it doesn't mean anything anymore. And one of the incredible things about your Savior is your Savior is going to challenge you to live for what really counts. So he says the very first thing he wants you to think about Am I living just for bread, for money, or what money can do just to be satisfied? And notice what Jesus says. He plunges right through that and says, you only came because I gave you your fill. He says in verse 27, don't work for the food, the bread that spoils, but for the bread that will endure to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The rabbi just jumped into the stratosphere. Here you are in a synagogue, and you know what this Jewish guy from Nazareth just claimed? He just claimed, I'm the son of man from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel said that there's going to come a great ultimate man who will come. He was in the lion's den with Daniel. He was in the fiery furnace. He's going to come and rule over world history. This Rav, this master in the synagogue of Capernaum just said, I'm the son of man. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Well, you read a little bit further. He goes on and says that God had put his seal of approval on him. People ask me, why should I believe in Jesus? I would say the reason you should believe in Jesus is because there is a great ultimate personal father. All of you deeply sense that in your life, that he created the world. And from the beginning of time, he's been revealing himself to us. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, when Jesus reached adulthood, the spirit of God came upon him when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Do you believe that? And then a voice said, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the one I want to trust. Amen? People ask me all the time, why should I believe in Jesus? Well, you tell me another master, another spiritual teacher, another rabbi, that God said, hey, this is my son. This is my beloved son. This is my chosen one. This is the ultimate man. This is the promised redeemer. The crowd goes on and respond. Then they ask him. I want you to know this was give and take. It wasn't boring like our services. They all raise their hand and say, hey, what are you talking about? So one of them raised their hand and says, in the synagogue. And I can just see this. My Jewish friends would easily do this. They'd raise their hand and say, wait a minute. What must we do to do the work that God requires? That's the big question. In 2011, what do we need to do so that the ultimate God in heaven will be pleased with us? How many think that's a really good question? How do you answer that question? What do you need to do? What do you need to do in 2011 in order to do the work that God requires. 
What's going to make you acceptable to God? How do your friends answer that question? Well, man, a lot of your friends are going to answer the question, well, I need to do some good things. I need to give money to those in need. That's a beautiful thing to do. I need to try to feed the starving. We just had a master who could multiply loaves. We need to feed the starving. That's a, a really important thing to do. We need to try to alleviate the suffering in the world physically. We need to try to eliminate AIDS. Those are incredible things to do. Those are all works that the, that the Lord in heaven wants us to do. But now we ask the Son of God. I ask the Son of God, what are the works that your Father, you have come from the Father, you're the Son of Man, what does your Father want us to do so that we might live forever with him? Great question. I mean, that's really a good question. That's a really important question. What do your friend need to do? What do you need to do? What does the world need to do so that we might do the works that God requires? Jesus says this. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he had sent. Did you hear that? Now, that's not just to give mental assent. We're going to find that as we say this passage. So we can start to wrestle, what does it mean to believe in the one that he sent? So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's the book of Ezekiel chapter 16. What are the Jews doing? The Jews are saying, listen, we're Jews. Our forefathers were those who went out into the wilderness and God sustained them in the wilderness by giving bread from heaven. How many of you believe that Yahweh, the great I am, took a couple million people and sustained them in the desert? Do you believe that? That's the story of the Old Testament. That's one of the great miracles in the Old Testament. How many of you believe that your Heavenly Father can sustain you? How many of you are stressed out about how you're going to keep hold of your job, how you're going to get a job, how you're going to maintain your health? This is where the rubber meets the road. You're all living in a wilderness. And one of the needs that we have in the wilderness as we wander, we're looking for bread. And the Jews said, all right. The great Moses that founded our nation. If you talk to any Orthodox Jew today, they'll say Moses is the great one. Moses is our master. Moses is the one that we follow. And I want you to know that Jesus as a Jewish Messiah in a Jewish synagogue is going to respond to that. They're saying, all right, you're claiming to be the great son of man. You're claiming to be the one that God has sent. Our forefathers ate manna in the wilderness. Show us that you're better than that. Jesus responded to the challenge. What he says, so they asked him, what miraculous signs will you do? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses, look at verse 32. It is not Moses who gives you the bread from heaven. So you don't look to Moses. Who gave him the bread from heaven? Now notice what he says, it was my father. No other human religious teacher ever talked like that. And I want you to feel that today. It just blows me away. Nobody talks like that. Jesus is saying to a Jewish, in a Jewish synagogue, he's saying, hey, my daddy in heaven. Wasn't Moses that gave you the bread? Moses can't produce bread to save his life. It was my father in heaven. They needed bread in the wilderness, so he gave them manna, which means what is it? And he sustained them. But then he says this, he said, it was Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my father. Now notice how Jesus jumps category now. Look what he says. But it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread from God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now you read that in your quiet time and you go, I've heard that from the time I was a kid. Do you realize those are the most amazing words? You know what I just read to you? In a Jewish synagogue in the first century, a Jewish rabbi said, you think the manna was a big deal? You think sustaining a couple million people in the wilderness is a big deal? He said, the real bread, the real bread that sustains you. When you get up in the morning as a Jewish kid, the first thing you do is eat some bread. It increases your sugar level. It gets you going for the day. And you drink some wine, and that gets you going. It feeds you. But Jesus is saying, I'm the real bread. Jesus just claimed that every one of you is alive today because of Jesus that was speaking in that synagogue. Today, your heart's beating, your lungs are working, your mind is working, your personality is a marvelous gift. And it's all because of Jesus. That's how great he is. Everybody on planet Earth is sustained by the one who gives life. Jesus is the one. That reminded us of John chapter 1. John began this whole book by saying, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Every single person, six billion people almost on planet Earth, are all sustained physically by this incredible Son of God. That's who my Jesus is. That's what John had claimed. Notice what it says. So they said, Sir, from now on, give us this bread. Now I want you to see how they're still thinking that he's talking about physical bread. And Jesus declares to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive them away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. For this is the will of the one who sent me, that I will not lose none of all that he has given to me, but I will raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus just jumped categories like crazy, just like he did at the woman of the well. I ask you today, what do you need? What does Dave need? Do I need just physical bread? No, physical bread will only sustain me as long as God gives me life, as long as Jesus keeps giving me the gift of life. But the Son of God just said something. He said, I am the bread of life. And you know what he just told you? He says, if you feed on me, you're going to have what? Everybody tell me, you're going to have what? How many of you want that? Do you realize how precious that gift is? That is an incredible thing. You've been built, every one of you, ponder. What happens when I die? Is there life after this? Jesus just said, I'm the bread. I'm the food. And if you eat of me, and he uses, he goes from eat to believe, you'll live forever. If you think back over your life, one of my friends was sharing with me this week, he said, when we give our testimony, we should talk about not our story, 
what we were before we came to the Lord, how we came to the Lord, what we are after we came to the Lord. But a really cool way to give our testimony is, is what was God doing in our life before we came to know Jesus? How did he bring us to Jesus? And what is Jesus continuing to do in our life? Isn't that a great way to think about it? Stop and think of how the Father was drawing you to himself. Just think, every one of you have a unique story. Like my story starts when I was really little. The father was drawing me because he put me in a home that I knew the gospel from the time I was a little kid. And he had my dad buy a Jewish camp up in the Adirondacks. And, and I went to the camp as a little five-year-old kid. And my sister was the head girl's counselor. And I've told you that story. So I was there. My parents let me stay there all summer long. So that I was sitting in what used to be an old Jewish theater to hear my dad talk about this bread of life. Talk about this Savior that died for me. Talk about this Savior that rose again from the dead. And as a little five-year-old kid, this Father moved me to trust in him. What's your story? Some of you have stories of being in your 40s where God drew you. But you can look back. God was protecting you. He was leading you. He was giving you guidance. Some of you had grandmothers that were talking to you when you were little bitty kids and you didn't even hear what they were saying. And suddenly in your 40s, it sprung upon you and you responded. Some of you had your mother-in-law praying for you and asking the Lord to help their precious daughter's husband to come to know Jesus. And you didn't even realize it. But the Father was pulling you. Notice the incredible thing. Do you realize that the Father is drawing people in your office? He's drawing people in your family. He's drawing people in our classrooms. He's drawing people to himself. You say, well, Dave, how do I know? Man, I, you know, here I am today, and, and am, I, am I one of the chosen? Notice the second thing that John, what I just read to you, says, anyone that comes, you'll never be cast out. Did you hear that? Anyone that comes, to the Father, through the Son, you'll never be cast out. John can tell stories of like a man born blind. Jesus heals him and gives him sight. When he goes before the synagogue, the Jewish leader says, how in the world, what's going on? You know, you couldn't possibly have been born in blind because this blasphemer, this, de this demonic man is the one that gave you light. And all he does is says, I don't know what's going on. All I know, I don't even know who he is. All I know is that once I was blind, now I can see. You know what the religious leaders did? They threw him out of the synagogue. That's the story that John tells. You might be cast out of your own physical family. You might be rejected by your friends. But Jesus just told you, you eat the bread of life. You believe in the Son of God because the Father's working in your life. You'll never be cast out. Boy, do I need to hear that. If my mind fails and I start going into Alzheimer's, my life is hidden with Christ in God. That's one of the worst things I can imagine. Some of you are going through that with loved ones. Jesus says, you'll never be cast out. Your life is hidden with me and God. Isn't that incredible? If I'm unconscious, like some of my friends that I've seen this past week, and no one seems to be able to talk to me, Jesus is holding me. He'll never cast me out. If I lose my job, if I go bankrupt, if everything caves in, I don't know where the bread's going to come from. The one thing that I really need that'll help me to live forever and ever and ever, I'll never be cast out. So if you feel cast out, if you've received Jesus into your heart and you feel that the Father rejected you, you feel that it's hopeless. Like I was with someone that's saying, man, it's just so hopeless. I'm just going to end everything. It isn't. That's a lie from hell. 
That's a satanic lie from the murderer and the liar because the Son of God just told you, if you've trusted me, if you've taken me inside of you, if you have believed in me, I will never, never, never cast you out. That's what I bank on. Now, how do you respond to that? Well, look what the Jews did. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. The Jews were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? That's a good question. It's incredible. Here's a man, as Jesus shares in the synagogue, they didn't have all the background that I have. They didn't have two billion people in the world that at least give lip service to Jesus. They didn't have 2,000 years of history where Jesus has become the most powerful person that ever lived. This is just the Nazareth boy. This is like, this, this is what's happening. It's like I'm at a party. It's like I'm at a party in Highland Park. And I suddenly, in the middle of the party, say, hey, I used to live in heaven with God. Huh? And then I say, I want you to know. Your fathers, you're, some of you are Jewish here in Highland Park. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness. Anybody believe that story? Yeah. You think that's a big deal. I'm the real man. I last forever and ever and ever. You know what my Highland Park friends are going to do? I was just at a party near Christmas. They said, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Midlothian. That was the end of the conversation. <laughs> you say, well, why did Jesus do that? Notice they say, we know where Jesus is from. He's from Nazareth. Was Jesus really from Nazareth? Tell me where Jesus really was from. Please tell me. Everybody really loud. Amen. Amen. Not Jerusalem. That's awesome. Great. Where was Jesus really from? Tell me, everybody. Bethlehem. Who was born in Bethlehem? The Son of God. That's the truth. Millions and millions of people learned that. But in the first century, almost everybody thought he was from Nazareth. Because the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said that he'll grow up on the other side of the track. He'll be called a Nazarene. He'll be from Galilee. The place that's in darkness will see a great light. People won't really know where the Messiah was from. And in the first century, lots of Jews understood that when the Messiah grows up, no one will really know his background. And John is eloquently telling you today. He says the Jewish leaders were rejecting Jesus in the synagogue of Capernaum. They were grumbling. They were fighting over Jesus. And they're saying, how could he possibly be the Messiah? We know exactly who his mom and dad is. They were dead wrong. They didn't know who his dad was. His earthly stepfather was Joseph. He was legally the son of Joseph, the son of David. But you know he was really the son of God. And if you know that in your soul, that's a gift that was given you. And that means that you've been drawn by the Father. And that's what I want you to build your life on. Jesus does what he often does. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves. One of the things I want us to do in our church family, beware of grumbling. Beware of getting together and grumbling. How could this be? It is foolish to stay up night and you can't sleep. Because the Lord will give to you his power, his grace. What is God doing? And what Jesus is saying to all of us, hey, stop grumbling. One of the most powerful things that the children of Israel did 
is they grumbled. One of the most discouraging things in the world is when we grumble. Don't grumble. Get involved. We need to start praying now, Lord, Holy Spirit, draw men and women to yourself. Incredible things are happening all around you. But if you grumble, all of my life in the ministry, every place I've been, there's others say, man, nothing's happening around here. If only the people did this. If only they would do this. And what the Lord really convicts me about is I can grumble against the Son. I can say, dear Lord Jesus, why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? And I become just like these Jews. And Jesus says, I want you to stop grumbling. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me and I will raise him up. At the last day, it's written in the prophets. They will be taught by God. I want every one of you to know that's the new covenant. And this morning, you are in the new covenant and God's Holy Spirit is in your heart if you've trusted in Christ and you are hearing the voice of God this morning. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's going to come a day when his spirit will come upon all those who believe in him. And you won't need just to have an external teacher. You can have the voice of God every single day as you open up this book for yourselves, as you interact together in your homes and your families and your small groups with fellow believers. It's an incredible privilege. We're living in the incredible days where I don't have to say, no, the Lord. You can say, Dave, I know him. I live with him. He's inside of me. That's what Jesus is saying. We fulfill the new covenant. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So we're not going to see God the Father. If we see God the Son, he's the one that represents the Father. I tell you the truth, that he who believes in me will have everlasting life. Again, Jesus comes back to his thought, I'm the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here's the bread that come down from heaven, which man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which is given for the life of the world. When we partake of the bread, we are reminding ourselves that Jesus, and notice how we switch from bread to flesh to giving it for the world. What an incredible reality 2,000 years ago when Jesus broke his body on Calvary for us and he gave his flesh for us. It was for the whole world and it provides forgiveness for our sins. It provides the fact that God can now enter into intimate relationship with us. How did the Jews respond? When the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, notice Jesus created great conflict in an audience. As American teachers, we want everybody to be at peace. We get all uptight when people start arguing. One of the things you need to realize is that if you really are dealing with truth, things get hot. There's arguments. There's rejection. There's fire. So the Jews in the synagogue, man, they're coming unglued. This guy's claiming to be God. How could he be that? And you've got to decide what he did. So what did you decide? I'll tell you the truth. I made it a little bit too hard for you. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back. I'm just a great rabbi. And I want to make sure that we keep having really big crowds here in the synagogue of Capernaum. We just had 5,000 on the hill. I'd like to have 25,000 on the hill. This is one of the things that really convicts me. My Savior is totally different from the way I think. Man, let's figure out a way we can get really a big crowd. 
My Savior didn't respond to crowds like me as an American. I'm really into big crowds. I was raised with my dad packing out Madison Square Garden. I was raised again and again and again. How many people were at the meeting last night? How many people got saved? We judge our success by that. And that's why Jesus really convicts me. You know what Jesus says? I would expect you to say, hey, we really need a really good advertising campaign. We need to spread out among Galilee. We need to spread out among Judea. Man, this will really make things happen. Let's get the people in. I'm a great Galilean teacher. The crowd in the synagogue is coming unglued. You know what Jesus says? Look what he says. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my drink, my blood, remains in me. The one who drinks my blood remains in me, abides in me, dwells in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. The audience divides at this point. Most people leave because those are the most obnoxious words I could ever tell a Jew. For one thing, you don't ever tell Jews to drink blood. All of their history. When they sacrificed an animal, a kosher lamb, you slit the throat, drained all the blood. None of this Texas stuff with the juice all around the prime rib. None of that for Jews. And my son of God says, you got to drink my blood. He says, you got to drink my blood. It's obnoxious. goes totally against everything they would believe. And then he says, you got to eat. This bread actually represents my flesh. You say, Dave, what is he talking about? Jesus is not saying that magically this is somehow turned into the glorified body of Jesus. So that if you eat it, it'll make you strong. He's not saying that somehow magically that his, this becomes the blood of the resurrected Jesus. I want you to know that a lot of my friends that I was raised with, that's what they believed, really. So they would sin all week long like crazy. We'd play baseball together or football. They would tell dirty jokes. They'd cuss. They'd lie. They'd cheat. And then they'd go and eat the bread and drink the cup after they did confession and it was all taken care of. I want you to know, John chapter 6 will have none of that. And one of the things I want you to realize is you're a pastor teacher. Jesus is not about magic. You all love magic. There's a very powerful thing. I want you to tell you what I'm calling you to. Dads, you're the priest in your home. You can break this bread. You understand what I'm saying? You don't need robes. You don't need fancy cathedrals. Jesus wants to enter your home. And he wants there to be a dad there that says, kids, this physical bread sustains us physically. But I want you to know that in our home, this represents Jesus, the true bread. And I feed on him every day. I abide in him. 
I listen to his word. I obey it. I nourish myself on him. He wants him to have a dad that says, kids, it's a tough story. It's the kind of a story that you'll grab my arm really tight, much more than even when the bad guys attack in the void of the downtreader. Because when Jesus, the ultimate Aslan, sacrificed himself on Calvary and a soldier plunged his spear into his side, blood and water flowed out, and he was dead. And the reason Jesus had to die is because you and I are sinners and we're disobedient and we're liars and we're just like these people that rejected him. We grumble and we're prideful and we're immoral. But the Son of God poured out his blood and when we drink this cup, we celebrate that wondrous, violent, sacrificial death because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And then we look forward. This bread and this cup also reminds us that Jesus, the bread of life, remember he said, if you feed on me, you're going to live forever and ever and ever. Then this cup not only causes us to look back to Calvary, not only look back to his blood that was shed, but we look forward to when we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus, with his Father at the head of the table, his spirit is among us and a, a dimension that we can't even imagine. And Jesus will say, my children, eat and joy. Eat and drink. Because we're going to enjoy love and truth and peace and prosperity forever and ever and ever. I want the Lord to build a house that's feeding upon the bread of life, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, which is a powerful symbol of internalizing him, letting Jesus inside. And it begins with me. Will I live for the true bread? Will I drink deeply from the true drink? Will I let Jesus be a fountain of living water that bubbles up in me? Thank you.